Smartcast. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. You know what I mean? There's a way of... Facing and dealing with anger that's healthy. We don't have to just deny or run away from these kinds of things. You know, so sort of moving out of escape space spirituality into integration spirituality. Welcome to the Liberated Healer podcast, where we touch on a variety of topics in the world of spirituality, energetic healing, and everything in between and beyond. Take an adventure on a shooting star with your host, Gina, offering their wisdom, guidance, and everlasting love and support. Hi, everybody. This is Gina Cavalier, the Liberated Healer, the Liberated Healer podcast. And we're really excited today to have Durga Des, Alan Duriel, and welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. So he has a new book come, uh, coming out called Worthy As You Are, which is a huge topic um, that can never be talked about enough. And I know that you mentioned that in your book. Um, you know, it just, it doesn't go away. It's something that we have to constantly work on. A lot of times, almost everybody that I know has, is in process of working on this. So um, you're a licensed clinical social worker and a certified holistic health practitioner uh, working in private practice. Uh, you're a formal practitioner of magic with more than 20 years of experience and has just yoga, meditation, and astrology as well, which is amazing. And you have a master's degree in social welfare from UCLA, which I also went to UCLA as well. Oh, so, cool. Um, yeah. So why don't you just tell us a little bit more about yourself and how you got to this book and what your journey was? Yeah. So basically, long story short, sorry, my cat is trying to be a guest star in the um, <laughs> In the podcast. <laughs> um, long story short, I, you know, had a lot of stuff that I went through when I was growing up, like I know many people did. I mean, I was bullied very aggressively for a really long time and had a lot of difficulties because of that, a lot of trauma and a lot of physical health problems and mental health problems over the years. And basically, when I was in my early 20s, I embarked upon a really intensive spiritual training program. And that helped me experience a profound level of healing within myself, which then later inspired me to become a therapist. It was that time, too, that I also was a holistic health practitioner. And the long story short, or that I became a holistic health practitioner. And the long story short of it is that I healed from things to a degree that I didn't even really know was possible for me. Wow. And um, which is not to say total healing right? One of the points that I make in the book is that 
sometimes the healthiest thing to do is get out of this binary look at healing, like you're totally done or you're just unwell and there's no in between, right? But I, you know, I, I got to places in my life in terms of my everyday spiritual experience and sense of healing and well-being that I wanted to share with other people and uh, became a therapist and then eventually started doing this kind of work. Yeah. And that's really the sort of short version of how I got here. What, what kind of um, intense spiritual training did you have? Yeah. So I was, so my first book, which is called The Little Work, is sort of like a training manual for magic practitioners, occult practitioners to take their practice to the next level. And that's what the training I went through was. But the thing is, it was a Southern California intensive occult order. Hmm. So what I mean by that is mixed in with the ceremonial magic practices and the yogic techniques that were more traditional, we were also reading books like Conversations with God and um, Taming Your Gremlin, which was about working with the ego. You know, so there was a certain amount of self-help kind of material integrated in there. And um, that's really what that was focused on. But while I was in that program, I was also in holistic health school where I was really immersing myself in more of the new thought type of material and other self-helpy material, like the Hay House kind of stuff. Yeah, I always think it's interesting at how somebody started because there is no one right way. You know, people always ask me, it's like, you know, put it out in the universe that you are working on yourself, that you need a teacher. Right. We'll just step right into that one. And, you know, you know, I went to uh, a school like a Berkeley Psychic Institute. Mm-hmm. I had, um, I was psychic and all this clairvoyance and I was seeing, yeah. for me, that was amazing. Um, but again, I always like calling the next teacher, but I just like to hear your story. About yeah. That. Yeah. And one thing I'll say too, um, actually one of my teachers in holistic health school was a graduate of one of the clairvoyant programs and taught us some of the psychic tools, which was really helpful. Um, the spiritual training program that I went through, one of the best things of it, aside from it being super intensive, was that it really focused on your everyday life needs to be part of your spiritual path in some way. It's yeah. too, like your job is too much of your life. Your you the everyday tasks that you perform are too much of your life that if you, if you don't weave them in, then it's going to feel like there's sort of no time for all of this. And meanwhile, one of the great secrets, right, is weaving this kind of stuff in, is seeing the everyday as spiritual. So that's a, a lot of what I was experiencing at that time and being taught. And a lot of people that I've been talking to now that reach out to me, they they completely ignore the side of their life and right. a big, you yeah. know, got cancer or they had a, right. a grieving passing or whatever, which yeah. It's, it's everybody's story. There's no right or wrong, but um, I agreed. You know, it's 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 a lifelong weed. It's mind, body, spirit. So right. it's right. at work. And if you have one element completely being ignored, does that nobody's perfect? But if you have one element of the yeah. three things completely being ignored, then you're going to have there's going to be a crash at one point where you right at it. Yeah. yeah. And I would say along those lines, one thing that is a really important part of my work, which is in my first book and is also in the new book, is that, you know, we can integrate all aspects of human life into our sense of what is spiritual. You know, so I think sometimes, especially um, 
maybe early on, there's this temptation of like, well, now I'm doing spiritual things and oh, look at those unspiritual things. You know what I mean? Or now I'm with my spiritual friends and oh, like if only I could be in a spiritual world all of the time. And it's like, well, there is a way to do that. And that's to appreciate the everyday things that are also spiritual too. But to recognize that like, you know, you can feel angry and still be a spiritual seeker. You know what I mean? There's a way of facing and dealing with anger that's healthy. We don't have to just deny or run away from these kinds of things, you know, so sort of moving out of escape space spirituality into integration spirituality, right? And then the nice thing about that is that it stays with you. Yeah. Spirituality is not just a vacation from your life. It is your life. I just have to, I just got reminded of something that's so funny. I have to mention it. Because Eckhart Tolle was one of my first, um, you know, deep dive and in, in, mm-hmm. in presence now. And he, somebody asked him, do you ever get angry? And he said, well, yeah, you know, of course he still gets angry sometimes, you know. And he goes, I was at this grocery store. There was this girl that was so slow, so slow. And everybody was just so frustrated. And even I, I started feeling this bubbling coming up, you know. Mm-hmm. As I got to the register, she goes, oh, my God, Eckhart Tolle, I love your book. <laughs> and everybody laughed. But I just thought it was, uh, I, I remind myself sometimes because it is, you can be, again, we're going to go into your book, but it, again, you can be hard on yourself. Right. Of, oh, now I'm supposed to be like this. I'm always supposed to be free of exactly. judgment. And free yeah. of, you know, I can't get angry anymore. I can't have a moment yeah. anymore. Right. No. Right. So- well, it's, yeah, I mean, it's, that's the thing, right? If you take some teachings to extremes, what it turns into is if I'm not grateful all the time, if I'm not positive all the time, I'm sabotaging my manifestations, I'm ruining my health, I'm ruining my relationships, etc. And in addition to being unrealistic, my experience is also that that's just not true. Um, but so I talk a lot about in my work about compassionate thinking. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I, I, Um, I use that term over the term positive thinking. And the reason is because I think, you know, one of the popular topics right now in culture is toxic positivity. And one of the reasons for that is because um, there's, in my experience, there's toxic positivity and there's non-toxic positivity. But it's sort of a more complicated discussion than just saying compassionate thinking, kind, empathic, supportive, understanding, thinking towards self and other to the degree possible itself fosters a positive mindset, you know? So if I'm thinking I have to only think positive thoughts or nothing's going to work out for me, that's a really scary, tense place to be in because God forbid I should have a negative thought if that's what I believe. But if what I believe instead is my work is to be kind, compassionate, and understanding to myself as much as possible, and while honoring where I am, I think thoughts that support the intentions that I have over time, that creates a mindset organically that is more and more and more positive, but it's organic, right? <laughs> there, there isn't this tension or this fear of what if I have an ungrateful thought? Because everything that you feel or think that would be perceived as negative is just funneled into the compassionate embrace. So it's a, it's a different way of looking at things. Yeah. Well, I really like that. And I just want to remind people that also, though, it's almost like a muscle. So uh-huh. you start going, start doing this on a daily basis. Yeah. Though, you will find that those moments are shorter. Yes. You know, 
because yes. you you have self tools now that you can go. It's yes. okay. Ground. Put some yes. music on. Right. Some juice. Walk away from this. But you know yeah. when you don't have these tools or some kind of tools, right? And you're in a meeting with someone and you're being humiliated in front of someone. Right. Yeah. And all of a sudden yeah. triggered by childhood or something. Right. We'll go into this dark place for months. Right. Something. Right. So yeah. that's why people like us do these tools. Right. They're like, so uh, let's get into some of your, um, your practices and tools for people that help them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so one of the big ones is compassionate thinking. And that's really the heart of what the book is about. Um, but having said that, I systematize it a lot more. So compassionate thinking, in my experience, is thoughts that are fact-oriented, that are accurate, that are wise, and that are empathetic. You know, so we're really trying to be understanding with ourselves, forgiving with ourselves. You know, so for example, let's say you are in a situation where you feel humiliated really looking at yourself and saying, what would I say to a close friend who felt humiliation like this? You know, what comforting, reassuring words might I offer? What self-care actions might I take? That's part of it too. There's a, um, the system in the book is a blend of cognitive behavioral therapy skills, which is one of the most popular therapy modalities today. And the sort of experiences I've had as a spiritual seeker and the sort of self-helpy type stuff that I found to be very effective too. Um, in my experience, cognitive behavioral therapy is great in helping us question and challenge our negative thoughts. Mm -hmm. that's, that's one of the best things about it. It's also really great about helping us act on behalf of our well-being. It's not as great in my experience at affirming supportive, positive thoughts, compassionate thoughts, that foster our well-being, which I think is what the self-help material tends to be better at. So sort of part of where I was coming from here is I was like, well, CBT tends, cognitive therapy, CBT tends to do all of this really well. And self-help generally does a lot of this stuff really well, or there's a lot of potential. In it. So what if you mix them together, which is what I do in my personal life and as a therapist. Um, and so uh, the sort of four step process for well-being it's very straightforward even if it's not always easy in practice which is act and think on behalf of your well-being that's one and two think and act and then three and four is dismantle and decrease thoughts and actions that work against your well-being you know so of course we're in our circumstances and those are going to vary from person to person but to the degree that we have power when we sort of feed this ratio my experience is that people tend to feel better and better. So that's at the center of the book. Uh, and then what we do is we go through different areas of life and specifically look at what are some very common thoughts that um, many of us have grown up with that work against our well-being. And then how can we affirm thoughts that will help us release some of that and have a healthier relationship with our authentic self. And spiritual practice is part of that too. Heart meditation, um, just connecting with spirit in a palpable way. Because my experience is that that, for me at least, really supercharged a lot of my healing journey. <sighs> okay. Oh, my goodness. Um, 
Yeah. I mean, you, you talk about, about healthfully process emotions and mm-hmm. around shame, guilt, chronic right. illness, anxiety and depression, self-sabotage and aging. Yeah. Um, I'm kind of ha- going back and having to, things, newer things are coming up for me as I age as well, you mm-hmm. know, because I always kind of felt uh, I wasn't going to, that wasn't going to bother me. Yeah. As I got older and now I'm on camera all the time and things like that. Right. I'm like kind of, and I, I, you know, when I read your book and I, some of this context, I was like, wow, this is something I'm really working on. Yeah, I hear you. And Absolutely. Uh, the the climate today, I mean, and a lot of the reason why I, I started the, the podcast was to really um, trigger warning people, but to help people who are suicidal or lost or, or didn't know how to you know, self-soothe themselves to have yeah. possibly put out positive and compassionate content. Right. Um, that's not provisional. You know, I don't, I, I, I avoid, try to avoid divisional conversations, but I, I feel like there's a huge generation, even the older people that are still suffering with the, the ageism and the, and the fear of violence. Absolutely. But the younger kids, because they're on camera all day long. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, you know, what's interesting too, sorry, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, in my experience, and I don't know what this is. I don't know if it's the Lizzo effect or that's what I've been calling it. But Gen Z, I think, is much better about body positivity than my generation is and the generations above mine. Mm-hmm. And I, I hope. I mean, it's so heartening to see because of of all of the things in my healing journey, you know, things that I thought would be so hard to forgive and move on from like things in my relationship with my mother or the, the abuse I experienced growing up. One of the hardest ones has been stuff around body image. And, and I think it's just because it's so pervasive in our culture, you know, and it's just like this relentless onslaught. And um, I mean, like, well, for me as a gay man, and then obviously also for women. And I think that even now, um, you know, straight men are sort of getting into this too with social media. And, but, but I, like I said, Gen Z seems to be better about this. And maybe part of it is the TikTokification of body positivity and, and, and that just the awareness of that even being an issue being so prevalent. But I absolutely hear you. I mean, on the one hand, so I'm, when I, my 40th year was actually one of the best years I have ever had. Um, and a lot of it was because of focusing on this kind of work very, very intentionally and, you know, cultivating thoughts that felt beautiful as a daily practice and really just moving in that direction. It was hard in a lot of ways, but it was also one of the best years of my adult life. But yeah, I mean, aging, I think sometimes that, that this is part of where cultivating that compassionate voice is so important because all of a sudden you know, you get white hairs and it's like, what's going on? You know, like, is this, is this okay? Or you, or, um, you know, like, I, like you were talking about video. Um, I'm on TikTok now. And when I first started filming TikToks, it was like, oh, like <laughs> I have wrinkles, like for real, you know, and, and okay, let's process through that. Like, let's, let's, uh, affirm some very compassionate and supportive thoughts about why that's okay. 
But yeah, I mean, it's it's a cultural issue that we're dealing with. And also location could have something to do with it because I've been, I moved six months ago to Montana mm. from Los Angeles. And it's so weird. I have a lot less um, desire or even, I, I kind of just, want to feel a little bit more of like my aging because i i everybody accepts it here yeah every every size is here and you don't walk into a restaurant where you used to if you were felt overweight or i don't know there right feels like a little bit of a difference out here it's a hundred percent so yeah yeah, yeah. i do think the gen z that's coming up um i always say um energetically i feel like they are um in a way, lack of a better word, star seeds, where they, they actually mm-hmm. get it a little bit more. They learn a little bit fast. They're learning from our mistakes a little bit faster. Yeah. They have to because they're going to be the leaders of what's coming in the future. And so they've been given a little bit more extra um, information, I would say, and that we've kind of had to go get a slug. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I also think, you know, it's like the next generation, hopefully, benefits from the work done by the previous ones and the wisdom shared. You know, I mean, I even think about my generation with mental health and we were better than my parents' generation. And then we did our own advocacy and our own writing and and stuff. And then the next generation after that, I did want to say though, to what you were talking about, Montana. So I actually have this in Worthy As You Are in the chapter on body image. Um, When I, I've been to India five times. And the last time I was really there, like, am I going to live here? And I didn't, but I was, I was really there for a long time. And when I'm in India, just the, the body image issue gets less and less and less important the longer I'm there. And it's not even really work. It's just, I'm not seeing the same images. I'm not seeing the same ads. It's a different culture. And it's like, it's yeah and i think that honestly that's part of why it can be so hard is if you're immersed in messages that are telling you um you need to be a size whatever it's just like very hard to totally tune that out and i also think that's part of why it's really good to be proactive with healing and compassionate thinking practices and spiritual practices because that helps us get a little bit of space from that sort of automatically yeah and so um can you go through some steps or processes that people can start with this with the worthy part with the song absolutely so um so in the book there is a whole worksheet on questioning negative or unhealthy thoughts but really it centers around four questions and and these are what i go over with people in therapy and outside and do in my personal life and the first one so this is when you know something's a big issue for you right you have a thought or a belief that's really powerful, really negative, persistent, you know it's an issue, okay? So the first question is, what is that, right? So if you're feeling something really extreme or if you're noticing a pattern that you don't like, it's like, well, what thoughts or beliefs are involved in this? So you figure out what that is and then you ask these questions. So the first one is, what is the story of this belief? And I'll give you an example. So a belief could be, let's say the belief is, I'm, I'm not good enough. Very common belief. You see it all the time in depression. I'm not good enough. All right. Question one, what is the story of this belief? Where did this belief come from? When did I first start thinking this, right? That's all in the, in that question. What is the story of this belief? And usually the story is something like, 
My mother said this to me. My father didn't do that. People were mean to me at school. I never really felt like I fit in. You know, there's there's going to be a story there. Yeah. You know, so that's the first step is where did this come from? And then the second question is, what effect does believing or thinking this have on me? What does it do to me when I believe that I'm not good enough? How does that make me feel? Terrible. Mm-hmm. What, how does that affect the way I approach life choices? Well, I'm unlikely to reach for very much because I feel like I'm not going to be good enough to see it through. Maybe I settle for really harmful relationships because I don't feel like I can do better or any number of things. And then the third question, which is a very common CBT question, is why might this thought not be true? You know, what is the evidence for or against this thought? Is it really true that I'm not good enough? And I, that's where I apply the four areas of fact-oriented, accurate, wise, and I say compassionate, but also empathetic. And this is, again, going to come in the, the next question. But it's, is it really fact-oriented and accurate that I'm not good enough? And in CBT, what we find when we ask people this question is that, that we, we, once we start coming up with examples, well, I was good enough to graduate from high school. I was good enough to do this. I was good enough to do that, right? So what does it even mean to be good enough, right? What does that even mean? And then the fourth question is, what would be a healthier thought to believe or think instead? And that's where we create affirmations. And we pick ones that don't feel impossible to believe because that can make us feel more doubt you know, yeah. reinforce our insecurity. But what would be a truer, a fact-based, accurate, a fact-oriented, accurate, wise, or compassionate thought that's healthier than the other one? And usually what we come up with is something like, you know, it's understandable based on what I've been through that I might feel like I'll never be good enough. But the reality is I've done a lot of things in my life and I'm here today and I'm on this healing journey and the future is open. Yeah. Yeah. So for example, let's just say um, somebody, oh, you know, they've always been, well, they're stupid or not smart or anything like that. If we wanted to take that, right, that's the story. Um, and then you're saying is, let's take a fact-oriented way to replace that conversation. Correct? Right. Yeah. So, yeah. So it's, yeah. So you first, you question it, right. And try to understand where it came from and what's wrong with it or what could be and, and how it's affecting you. And then what's, yeah. What can you say instead that is going to resonate as true on some level and that will feel truer the more you say it to yourself. What I like about what you're saying is you keep mentioning this word fact, fact oriented. Mm-hmm. I haven't heard that really before. So that's, yeah. But a therapist sort of, okay. Yeah, it's so that's very much part of cognitive behavioral therapy. But one of the reasons for that, um, in terms of the creation of affirmations, and this is more my work, is that in my experience, if an affirmation is grounded in facts, then it has more power, at least intellectually, than a negative thought that isn't right? A lot of the worst negative thoughts that people have are very distorted. You know, they're very skewed. No one's ever going to love me, right? Well, wow, how could that really be true? You know what I mean? And so 
just to move in the direction of a thought that's supportive and compassionate, that's more fact-oriented, really, um, it has more power because of that. And so that's the thing. There's power in a fact orientation. It's harder to argue with, right? Because if you come up with some kind of a really affirmative thought, like that's just super positive, but that's not grounded in the facts, then when you start to feel depressed again, if you do, it's not as easy to intellectually reason with that thought. Because it's like, oh, well, this is just what I'm telling myself, but I don't believe it right now. So I guess it's not true. Whereas if it was something like, remember when I did that whole process where I like questioned this whole thought and wrote all of this out and like now came to the realization that actually like I have been good enough for many things, it's harder to argue with that. So yeah, it's, and the thing is, um, there are lots of ways to look at facts and be fact oriented. You know, there are still many ways that you can um, skew facts in a compassionate way, Um, but it's keeping them that way because oftentimes our most negative, harmful thoughts are very, very much um, inaccurate, not fact-oriented. They might have some basis in facts, but not a lot. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, I was thinking about when you get, so this is sort of like a daily practice and this is um, a lot of work, but what about when you're just in sort of like a a dark episode? Yeah, so first of all, thank you for saying that because one thing I, I, I do like to say a lot about this is that It does seem like a lot of work, but I also think it doesn't have to be. And what I mean by that is if someone just questions a negative thought once a day, five minutes or less, just once a day, why might this thought not be true? It creates a pattern, a habit of asking that question. And then once the habit's there, it stops being as much work. Because now you're just, your thought stream is just automatically starting to question your thoughts. So just once a day, once a day. Okay. When someone is in a dark place, compassion, compassion, compassion. It depends how dark it is. If it's really super dark, it might just be focusing on self-care until the storm passes. Self-soothing, just nurturing activities, being kind to yourself. It's normal in depression to feel like this. It's normal to have thoughts like this. I'm going to try to take care of myself. I'm going to try to be with other people if that feels all right. And then once the storm clouds start to recede some, then we lean into the more active questioning process. So it's about meeting yourself where you are, right? Because sometimes people are too depressed to do this kind of work. Correct. And then in that situation, that's where the thoughts are more around, okay, I'm experiencing depression right now. Depression tends to make people feel and think things like this. So let's just be as kind to ourselves as we can and wait that out. Yes. Then move into the other stuff. Yeah. And sometimes you're just legitimately sad about something, a loss of friendship, a loss of a job. Right. And, you know, that's another thing that I feel like sometimes we, we, we gloss over. It. Right. Um, sometimes it's not depression. Sometimes, I, you know, I lost a relationship that was important to me and I, yeah. and um, it feels repetitive. So I'm, I'm starting to mourn all the other relationships. I'm not really depressed. I'm actually mourning a situation in my life. Yeah. Well, and so another thing about compassionate thinking too, is that it's all about embracing the reality of the human experience with kindness for ourselves. And grief is part of the human experience. Yeah. I mean, grief is legitimate. If we're grieving, it's important to be with that and, and to just really 
be in process with that. So in a situation of grief, there might not be, you know, what we might say to ourselves is something like, I'm so sad that this friendship is over. I really enjoyed that relationship with this person. I'm going to take care of myself as best I can while I'm mourning and honoring this loss. And if it was, if it was a betrayal, something like, I feel so betrayed and I'm so sorry that it went this way. The kinds of stuff that you would probably say to a really good friend and you say it to yourself, you know? That, that's really, I, I want to repeat that again. Um, you know, speaking to yourself the way you would say to your best friend. I think um, a lot of the people that I speak to, including myself, that um, have worthiness issues on their self is... Um, and I've been practicing this a little bit because I'm like a motherly person. Like I will care the nth degree, everything yeah. and in my, but when I'm suffering through something, I'm really hard on myself. Yep. Like, what, why, why didn't you catch yourself and say in a more appropriate way and understanding that X, Y, Z. Right. And I, I talk to myself so much worse sometimes than I would ever do to anybody in my life. Yeah. So going back and, and being your own best friend in a way. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And it's actually, what would you say to a close friend is a, is a really popular cognitive behavioral therapy question. But part of the reason too, to what you were saying that I um, really like it is that when I talk to people about compassionate thinking and therapy, it is so common for them to say, I'm so understanding with other people and I'm so hard on myself. And because of that, I've really seen what can happen when people just cut themselves even a little bit of slack. And it's a lot of improvement, you know, a lot of improvement. Um, I also wanted to say too, because I didn't mention this earlier, part of compassion and thinking is looking at the big picture, trying to understand the context. You know, sometimes, for example, with a friend, we might say, well, you were so tired when you did that. You know, you were exhausted. And like, that's probably part of why you behave that way. You weren't on your best footing. Whereas to ourselves, we'd be like, I can't believe you said that. What's wrong with you? And it's like, well, you were tired. You were exhausted, right? Like that's something that happens in life. Sometimes we're tired. And, um, and it's just, yeah, so many people are so hard on themselves. And I'm sure that comes from external influences, depending on where we're from. But yeah, it's a real issue. And people are so afraid to lose people in their life and, or, you know, be, ad, you know, an adversary, even though that that relationship maybe isn't good for them anymore. Yeah. Um, and that's what I'm, I have seen a lot of is uh, having to separate yourself out of a, a toxic relationship. Yes. Yeah. And so one thing advice on that. <laughs> well, one thing I would say, first of all, about that is, is um, any issues where you feel like you're not behaving as well as you want to, if this isn't common for you in your relationships, try to decontextualize that or as something that you're thinking of as just how you are, you know? So for example, I was in a, uh, a friendship that was very toxic years ago. And I remember just thinking, you know, my, the, that friend had these ideas of me that, or these behaviors that, that she had that were really not in any of my other relationships. And so I was able at some point to say, well, this is only an issue with her. And mm -hmm. the reason really is because she is the issue. 
because this is an issue with her in lots of her relationships. And it's not an issue in any of mine, except for this one. And sometimes people do that. They have hangups and they project them onto everyone in their life who they're close to. You know, so that's one is really like looking at what's actually going on and what you're blaming and judging yourself for and trying to understand that situation. And then also owning the facts and owning your own behavior and looking at the receipts and like seeing the facts, like what really is happening. Um, but then, you know, I think it depends on the situation. But one of them is that the reality, one of the, the thoughts that are helpful to people sometimes is like, a lot of relationships don't last for our entire lives. You know, friendships don't always last forever. And some sometimes we grow apart. Sometimes we just become different people that are no longer as compatible. And it's just a natural thing that happens. And it's definitely something that happens when you're on an intensive path of healing and spiritual seeking. Because we just become people tend to just become so different in some ways. And then they're not always as resonant with people they were close to before. And when we try to cling to that, it can really cause problems, you know, because it's just like, it just doesn't fit anymore. One of the things that I say in the definition of a toxic relationship, the way I define a toxic relationship is a relationship dynamic in which one or both people can't meet one of their needs because of how the relationship is. So either an emotional need or wow. some other kind of need, right? So sometimes that need is, I feel like I need to be seen in my friendships. I feel like I need to be respected in my, usually it's respect. Like this person's not treating me well. They're not treating me respectfully. They're not being conscientious, but there's some kind of a need that's not being met. And so part of the healing can also be looking at, well, what needs weren't being met in that relationship that became toxic? You know, and sometimes the need is um, if somebody's going to be this close to me, I need to have a better intimacy with them. We've really grown too far apart to be this close. And, and sometimes those are toxic relationships that can be salvaged because the answer is you see them once a year instead of once a month. Yeah. But then other times it's just a total crash and burn because it's just not compatible anymore. My friend used to have a little saying, which you probably heard is... Um... People can be a season, a reason, or a lifetime. And yep. sometimes that used to make me feel a little bit better too. Yeah. Um, you know, when I was a kid, I I was just like this 1970s glowy sun child, right? Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking like, I'm going to never have anyone mad at me. I'm going to make right. everybody likes me and everybody likes each other. I'm going to be the fixer. I actually remember being like that when I was a kid. So it's like, I would like stop all the fights in school and all that stuff. And then it just became heavy and heavier, heavier, because then I was becoming less and less authentic to myself. Right. When I had to break off that thing saying, oh, I'm not really comfortable with that. I had to go through a breakup with many people. Mm -hmm. so I felt a lot of loss. Uh, and yeah. then I always, I turned that in, inward into me saying, well, you're the problem mm. you know, um, because some no, all these people don't like you anymore, you know, <laughs> but it was because I was picking all these really wrong people because I was trying to fix everybody. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, I mean, and I think that that also right on the subject of compassion, something yeah. that often happens, it's not like we come into this world with perfect relationship skills. We learn them over time. And I mean, for sure. I mean, I, I think that the 
the friendship that I was just talking about, part of why that didn't work is because when we first became friends, it was all about, you know, supporting each other in a certain way. And then as I went further on my healing journey, it just became more and more one-sided because I wasn't really reaching out in that way. Like, I think, I think that that's starting over with it a little bit. I think that part of what happens is like, yes, like sometimes when we are coming at people from one way and then we shift how we are our orientation, it just doesn't match anymore. And yes, like if you're, you started a lot of relationships as a giver, maybe in a way that was a little bit um, unhealthy. And then other, you were with a bunch of people who were oriented toward taking, and then you're not giving anymore of that way. That's going to cause issues, but it's still healthy, right? It's still healthy to move in that direction. And the shift is important on both sides. Yeah. People get to learn both. um, Right. Both are growing and that's kind of, um, you know, the whole point, I guess. So, um, what do you have, do you have any advice on um, the anxiety associated with some of this process of healing? Yeah. So I, so, um, okay. So anxiety, it really depends on what it's about. I mean, there is a section for people who are thinking of picking up the book, there is a section in the book on anxiety. Um, and Usually it relates around um, a couple of things. One is getting the self-soothing practices down really, really well. It's so important with anxiety to be able to self-soothe. When we try to question anxious thoughts and we haven't soothed ourselves, it often is just like pouring gas on the fire because the the feeling is so strong. It can be hard to believe um, what we're affirming. So step one is getting really good at self-soothing. I mean, when I work with people in anxi- on anxiety and therapy, I try to have them do relaxation exercises five days a week for the first six weeks or so to really get it down. You want to be able to snap your fingers and soothe. So relaxation, mindfulness practices, you know, that's step one. And then step two, once you've soothed yourself some, is doing this compassionate thinking around what's the belief here that's feeding this anxiety? You know, what's going on here that I'm thinking about or, or feeling a need for, or wanting, or worrying about, right? Um, and then that's when you, when you do those questions of the thought. I will say, though, that two um, affirmations that have really helped me with anxiety, the first one is I have effective coping skills. And the reason for that is anxiety often says to us the opposite. You know, we feel like we won't be able to handle something. We won't be able to deal with it. But usually most of us, when push comes to shove, do get through it in the end. Yeah. So um, just saying every day, a few times a day, I have effective coping skills. Eventually that goes deep enough within that you feel anxious and it pops into your head. And you're like, oh, that's right. I feel like I can't handle this. But what I actually know is that I have effective coping skills and I'll probably be okay. And the second one, it depends. Like I have clinical anxiety. Not everybody does. Um, But what I would say to myself with my clinical anxiety would be like, this is a symptom, right? The level of anxiety that I'm feeling about this is a symptom of clinical anxiety. It does not mean that it's true because anxiety wants you to believe the story, right? It wants you to believe that what it's telling you is true, which feeds it and makes it grow. But if you try to just not believe the story, right, like it's not true that if I go to the grocery store, I'm going to, you know, collapse in the milk aisle. That's probably not what's going to happen. 
You might feel like that's what's going to happen, but it's probably not. And the reason you're worried about it to that degree is because there's something going on there. Right. So that was helpful for me. Yeah, go ahead. No. And um, what I've noticed is a lot of people are worried about what other people are thinking about them. Mm -hmm. And I have to say like nine times out of 10, probably they're, that's completely wrong. Oh yeah. Have this way of um, almost putting stories in our mind as well about what other people are thinking. Oh, right. they thought that. And yeah, do I do I call them and correct that, or will that look like a weakness on my part? And then all these stories over and over again. Yeah. So, um, you know, taking that as I mean, the brain science is incredible. Mm-hmm. About. Oh. Isn't there something like we have like, I don't even like 30,000 thoughts at one time. Uh, yeah, I've heard that before. You know, they're yeah. like one, two, like, I guess your brain can only hold on to one thought at a time or something. But um, it feels crazy because you've got a million going on in there. And you're like, how is that possible? But really, if you can let go of that one thought and like kind of release that, like that yeah. mindfulness practices and things like that. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, the thing about that too, is that when I, when that affirmation, I have effective coping skills occurred to me, I had been treating my anxiety mostly with mindfulness and relaxation exercises and questioning the thoughts. And that was the real wake up call for me of affirmations make a difference too, right? Like it wasn't enough for me just to say to myself, you feel really anxious about this, but it's probably not that big of a deal. It, I, I needed to hear that I have effective coping skills to really digest that as true. And the way to do it was by telling myself with affirmations over and over again, you know? And so that's why, like I, where, I, where I'm so passionate about, I love how good CBT is at questioning thoughts. And I think we need to borrow a little bit from self-help around affirming ones, ones that actually resonate because I, I like to think of this work as being like inner gardening. And when we plant these seeds of thoughts within and we water them, they really do grow. And it changes how we look at life and how we experience things like anxiety. And to what you were talking about earlier with depression, you know, my experiences of depression have gotten faster and faster and faster the more that I have deepened in this work. And that's because now if I experience depression, I'm able to say, this is depression. This is what it looks like. This is how it tends to work. I know what these kinds of thoughts are. This will probably pass if I don't feed these thoughts. And then it does. And then I move on, you know, but it's much faster than years ago when I would be depressed for like months or most of a year. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I really like, um, is I know that. You would think of affirmations that saying them out loud, but um, I don't know. I don't think like I've heard that recently. So I like that idea, though, of actually saying it out loud because the vibration of the voice, mm -hmm. the I have coping skills. Yep. I have effective coping skills. I have effective coping skills to get through this because it's all in our mind a lot of time, right? Yeah. Even if I'm thinking that I can just see myself if I'm in a, like a trigger situation. I'm going to use that next time. I'm going to, you know, but to, I can feel it right now energetically and vibrationally yeah. out loud and making it so like you're like, right. Yeah. Stay in a way that's like, this is so. Right. Yeah. Well, and the thing is, 
That is the power of keeping it fact oriented Mm -hmm. because it is true that you do, right? It's not a stretch to believe that. So when you say it, even if you're feeling a little anxious in that moment, and maybe it's a little hard to believe another part of you is going, even though I feel anxious and this is a little hard to believe, I also know that this is true. On an intellectual level, I know that this is true. And then the power grows and grows and grows. What I say for people is, you know, if you want to say it out loud, you can say it out loud. If you want to say it internally, you can say it internally. The important thing is to say it with attentiveness, to really say it with presence of mind. We don't want to phone affirmations in if we can avoid it, because the more present we are with it, the deeper and far reaching its effects will be. Well, I think we came kind of for a full circle because we started this in the beginning um, and then we went through the different steps. So I really Mm -hmm. that. um, and do you want to kind of take us out with any kind of lasting thought or a mindfulness practice or something you'd like to? Leave? Yeah, well, the one th- I think the one thing that I just wanted to, to close with, which is really central to what the book is about, is just that, you know, so many of us have grown up with so many messages in our lives that have told us in some way that we're not worthy as we are. And we can let those go to a great extent, if not fully. And it doesn't have to be a monumental effort, even a little work every day in that direction, but a little work can really make a difference. So I think sometimes it can seem hopeless or like the mountain is too high, but one step at a time can get us there. And, and a lot of us can do that. Well, thank you so much. So Durgatis, it's been really amazing to meet you and to um hear about your story and how you got here and thank you for putting worthy as you are together thank you to Llewellyn publications for um you know putting this out into the world and um i love your instagram so people (laughs) thank you there's a lot of really great affirmations on there so anybody and we're going to be tagging all this below and so if anybody has any questions they can go right to your instagram but thank you so much and thank you so much for having me it was wonderful to meet you Oh, you too. Many blessings. All right, likewise. Thanks again. Bye. Bye. If you enjoyed this episode, you can find us online at theliberatedhealer.com, on Instagram at Liberated Healer Podcast, or on Facebook at The Liberated Healer. Give us a follow, subscribe, send us a message if you so feel, and thank you for your support. Yes.